So we're going to talk a little bit about the Bible itself this morning. Um, my title of my message, if we can call it a title, is called People of the Book. And how many of you today have brought a, an actual paper Bible with you? Hold them up. Paper Bibles. I know that's kind of a thing of the past, and, uh, and I am a part of that. I brought a Bible, and I'm, I'm going to tell you a little story about this Bible, uh, because when I gave my life to Christ at the age of 18, which uh, will be next month, uh, 50 years ago, it gives you a little idea how old I am. <laughs> August 9th, 1973, I gave my life to Christ. Um, you know, back in those days, there was no digital. I mean, it didn't exist. And uh, everything was analog, including paper Bibles, and uh, people hadn't conceived of the idea of the Internet. I'm sure the military and some colleges had some of that stuff going on, but it wasn't among the popular culture like it is today, pervasive. Now, I'm going to talk about that. Again, I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to talk about people of the book. Christians are people of the book. The Bible is, is sacred to us. It's important to us. And if, whether you're carrying a paper Bible with you to church or you have a, a 100 million different translations of the Bible on your phone. You know, I'd use the, the Bible app. I love it. And uh, I can just go through translations. It's just really great. I mean, it's, so, it's such a neat thing that has been developed in our time. <clears throat> but our anchor, that which we go to, that which we lean on, that which we stand on is the Bible. In Matthew 4, Verse 4, in the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, it's called the temptation in the wilderness. So he had fasted for 40 days. And it says here that he was tempted by Satan. And one of the first accusations that Satan comes to him is to challenge him in his hunger to turn stones into bread. And Jesus gives an answer to that challenge. He says, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's what we live on. That is where our life emanates from. That is the spring, the head of the, of the, of the river. Three times during this temptation, Satan assaults him with a challenge. The first is, turn these stones into bread. Prove that you are the Son of God and have God's power in your life. It is written. The second time he says, prove you're the Son of God by throwing yourself off the pinnacle of the temple because he even quotes scripture, you know, the angels will, the Bible says the angels will take care of you so that Satan is using scripture against Jesus. And Jesus says in reply, he said, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Third, down, third time, Satan comes back and assaults him again and, and tempts him to bow down before me, he says. And I will give you, if you do that, you worship me. I will give you all the riches and the power of the world. And Jesus says, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. These were, these were texts from the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't yet been canonized. It had Really, the writings didn't even exist at this time. And Jesus three times references scripture from the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible. 
Jesus himself was a man of the book. The Old Testament was his only reference point for his walk on this earth. And one of his most common statements as he went about Judea and Galilee preaching, it was, it is written. Over and over again, he quoted scripture. And then, of course, added commentary to it. Sometimes, like in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he says, you have heard that it was said, which is another way of saying it was written. You've heard this. But I say unto you. So he's introducing New Testament ideas. When he was 12 years old, in Luke chapter 2, there's a story of him and his parents, Mary and Joseph, going to Jerusalem for uh, their purposes there. They did uh, these annual uh, pilgrimage, and he went with them, and he disappeared into the crowd of many Jews going on this pilgrimage. And for three days, they couldn't find him. Like you can imagine as a parent of a 12-year-old, number one, the first couple of hours is, where did that kid go? And then after that, it's like, oh, I lost him. You know, I can't imagine uh, Mary's anxiety. It says, after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, the rabbis, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. This is pre-pubescent, pre-adolescent Jesus, man of the book. The first followers of Jesus built on this example. They discovered the power of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible at that time, these first followers. They too became people of the book. Later, the writer of Hebrews, the book, the New Testament book of Hebrews, wrote this about the Bible. And he was referring, this writer was referring primarily to the Old Testament scriptures. He says, for the word of God is living and active. Think about that sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Has that ever been your experience when you read the Bible? It's like exposure, reading my mail, getting what's going on inside, piercing inside of me, dividing between even my joints and marrow, physical effects. Two thousand years later, we are still radical about this book. This is a King James Bible that I bought two years after I gave my life to Christ, October 1975. You can, after church, if you want to see it, it's, it looks like an old man's Bible. I mean, there's mar- there's tape holding it together. It's a Cambridge Bible, which was famous back in those days for making a Bible that would never die, never be destroyed. In fact, Cambridge had this thing. It was it was life warranty, lifelong warranty. Well, they didn't plan on people actually reading it every day. They were thinking you buy it for your kid when he goes through your know, catechism and confirmation in the Lutheran Church or some other church, and you stick it on your on your library and you pull it out, you know, on Sundays and maybe a couple other times. But we young people bought these Bibles thinking, lifetime warranty. You know, we wore through them in a few years. <laughs> Go back and get another one. They finally did away with that lifetime warranty. There was too many Jesus people reading the Bible. It was ruining their bottom line. Their ROI was changing. So this is my King James Bible. And you think, wow, you're reading the King James. Were you like a radical or something? No, that was all they had. You know, when I got saved, 
it was about three translations that were common. There were others, but the common ones, American Standard, um, Revised Standard, and King James, and then soon thereafter they came out with the NIV in the, in the 70s. I think it was that the NIV came out, and that's been around for a while. That made Bible reading a lot easier. I actually started as a young person reading the Living Bible, which was a paraphrase, and I read that for two years until I decided I needed a little bit more uh, more accuracy uh, as my faith was growing. <clears throat> Pastor Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel Movement, if you've seen the, the remake of that movement, the Jesus Movement, called the Jesus Revolution, he held up his Bible. He did this regularly. He held up his Bible and said, this is God's word. It is life. Let's open our Bibles together. Wow, that's awesome. And one thing I liked about Calvary Chapel through the years is man, whenever you saw a Calvary, you could tell a Calvary Chapel person because they were carrying a Bible. <laughs> they were carrying a Bible, man. And we were that way when we went in the missions, my wife and I as a young couple in our 20s, and uh, we went in the mission field and we'd go through this little pick list of things while we're getting in the car to go to the airport to leave for a month. We say, what do we got? You know, we got our passport, yep. Got our tickets, yep. Got our money, yep. And got our Bible, you know. That was, if we had those, and I'm serious about this. We had like clothes, ah, you can buy clothes and, you know, other things you can buy. But you can't, you cannot travel without your passport, without your ticket, without money. And not, you can't leave without your Bible. <clears throat> so, people of the book. All great moves of God down through the years have happened in part because people rediscovered or discovered for the first time the power of this book. We hold it in our hands every day. The Bible is the reason. It's the reason we come to church. God designed us from the very beginning, even before the biblical story, Genesis, first three chapters about the, the creation and the fall when we fell away from God, God designed us to be hungry for and needing two things. One is his presence and the other is his truth. We need these things in our lives and that's partly why we do what we do in church on Sundays. His presence, the Holy Spirit moving in our hearts and his truth coming to us through the preaching of the word. The lost world needs this, where confusion and relativism and ambiguity rule, especially in Western cultures, people long for clarity and authority, something we can stand on, lean on, something will never change. This is why people follow Jesus. He spoke, he came and spoke with authority. There's this, there's this text in Luke 4. I'll just read it quickly. He said, when he came into Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath, he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon and an impure spirit, and he cried out at the top of his voice, go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus, and I can just imagine, Jesus just looks at him and just whispers, be quiet. I, I don't think Jesus yelled, I don't know that, that's just my discerning or thinking. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly, come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. And all the people were amazed and said to each other, what words were these? 
With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. Human beings, we are inherently religious. We're looking for something, if you define that as looking for something outside of ourselves, something that is beyond us, something transcendent. We are inherently religious. We seek two things. We want existential answers to our questions about life and death, and we want emotional experiences that validate our beliefs. That's why we do what I just talked about. These things are a part of our existential quest for redemption, which is deliverance from evil, clarification about meaning, having sense of purpose. This is why we come to church. Now, I know some of us come to church for other reasons. We come to meet people. Some of you young single guys come to meet pretty girls. I was a young single guy. (laughs) In fact, before I got saved, I got invited to a meeting by a young pretty girl. And of course, I wasn't saying no to that invitation. Young ladies come to meet nice guys. When Upper Room started 11 years ago on a Thursday night, young people came for the food. Some, of, some came for the food and for the connections with surfing because there's a whole surf community that came out to this meeting down the road a little ways. And of course, lots of guys and gals came to meet girls and guys and some of us leaders had to sort that out every now and then because some of the guys had nefarious intentions and we had, nee, you probably need to go find somewhere else to have some fellowship. <clears throat> we go to, these, go to church for these secondary reasons but then amazingly, God ambushes us (laughs) with what? His power and his truth. Every one of you can relate to that. If you've had an experience with Jesus Christ, you say, you you come to know this idea that God sought me. I didn't even know I was looking for God. He was seeking me and he ambushed me. The Bible is the source of all these things, life, joy, guidance, success, well-being. Peter wrote about this in his second letter. He says this in verse 1 of chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them we might become partakers of the divine nature. Wow. So there's this knowledge that we need. There's things that we have to be trained. C.S. Lewis was famous for talking about this, saying human beings need to be taught. We're not born with a PhD. We're we're born kind of dumb, you know, and we need to be taught. And so what we're taught is important. And God has knowledge that he wants us to know about himself. And the fallen condition, of course, has robbed us of these things that we had kind of intuitively, per- perceiving them. Now we don't, we don't have those things and we need to be taught. <clears throat> To get that knowledge, to receive those promises, we must hear, we must read, even study God's word. Now, 
When I left home, I was the middle child of three, and when all three of us, we're all about two years apart, older sister, younger brother, three of us, by the time we left, my parents had a big house in Pennsylvania, and they were still pretty young, young at heart, loved young people, and so they'd have young college students or high school grads come and live with them for a year or two at a time, one or two, usually one, and that would help them get on their feet out of high school or get through college. So they had different different ones from academic young young guys or gals or, or just vocational. And the one guy, young guy, was a little short guy, probably, he was really short, 5'11", maybe. Uh, his name was Tony, he was a little chubby little guy. And uh, I met him a couple times when I was home visiting my parents and he was living in the house. And every day, Tony would get up in the morning to go to his job <clears throat> and he'd t- carry this great big family Bible. You know what I mean when I say a family Bible? I mean, it's, it's not a brick. It's more like a concrete block. <laughs> he would carry this big family Bible, run out through the kitchen to go to his car. And one day, he runs out, and then he runs back in. And his, my mom said, what's the matter, Tony? And she, he said, I forgot my Bible. So he runs upstairs to his bedroom and grabs his Bible and runs back down. And my mom stopped him in the kitchen and says, Tony, it's great that you're taking a, your Bible with you to work. Um, what do you do, like read it on break or lunch? And he said, oh, no, I need to sit on it so I can see out, see out through the windshield. <laughs> you got to read your Bible, all right? You got to read your Bible. So how did this New Testament, we were talking about the Old Testament, how did the New Testament come to be? There's 27 books, a lot of them are letters, some of them are narratives, like the Gospels. There's 27 books in the New Testament. How did that happen? The early church, you know, didn't have that, not, not right away. When G, during the times of Jesus, in the very beginning at Pentecost, and the first parts of Acts, these books did not exist. They came into being in what we call the first century, those first years. Many of them were written by people who were following Jesus, like Peter and John and all these different ones. Here's what British scholar F.F. Bruce says in his book called The Canon of Scripture. Now, the word canon is not the thing you shoot, uh, you know, out of boats. It's C-A-N-O-N, and it means the standardization of something. So the canon of Scripture, the standardization, the formal recognition that these books have distinct value. They are sacred, that kind of idea. So that didn't exist yet, and in the New Testament especially, and F.F. Bruce makes this commentary. He said, at the beginning of its existence, the Christian church found itself equipped with a book, a collection of sacred scriptures which it inherited. He's referring to the Old Testament. It was not based on a book, meaning their faith. It was based on a person. Jesus Christ, crucified under Pontius Pilate, raised from the dead by God and acknowledged by his followers as Lord of all. But the book bore witness to him, Old Testament. In this role, they found it indispensable. And at the same time, they found the record of his life and teaching, his suffering and triumph, his indispensable, that was indispensable to their understanding of the book. In this, they were but following a precedent established by Jesus himself. Throughout his ministry, he appealed to the scriptures. All of that is referring to the Old Testament, called the Hebrew Bible, the 39 books of the Old Testament. To their great amazement, the followers of Jesus found Jesus in the Old Testament. 
Everywhere they read, if you read the writings of Paul and Peter and John, they're referring to the Old Testament just like Jesus did, and they find him everywhere. When I went to seminary and studied a master's for missiology, one of my tasks for one of the classes on a theology of mission is he said, take a scripture, any scripture, and find Jesus in it. Find mission in it. You could find it. It's amazing. They discovered as they're reading and and also writing what Jesus did, because they felt they needed to remember all this stuff, that God was on a mission, and he'd always been on a mission, from the very beginning, from before the foundations of the world, to send his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. And the first followers of Jesus built their faith on that. They also built their faith on what they heard, what they saw, what they experienced directly in their interactions from Jesus. Those became what we know as the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What they read and discovered from the Old Testament, like we just referred to, and what Christian leaders later, in recent years later, like Peter, Paul, Luke, James, John, wrote down in letters. After Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, these followers wrote down all these things, their direct experiences with Jesus. Matthew, the Jewish tax collector, he was one of the 12 apostles that traveled around with Jesus for three years. He wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Mark, who wrote the second gospel called the Gospel of Mark. He, historically, we, we believe that he assisted the apostle Peter in writing down what Peter remembered from all those years. Mark was around too, of course, but was probably a very young man at the time, young, a boy probably. Mark wrote down an, another gospel called the Gospel of Mark from Peter's memories. Luke, who was known as a physician, wrote the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts. And John, who was one of Jesus' disciples, one of the 12, he wrote the Gospel of John and he wrote four other New Testament books, three, three letters and the, book, the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Even two of Jesus' brothers, James and Jude, who if you study, you can see it found in the scripture. At the beginning, Jesus' brothers, he had four brothers and at least one sister. These are you know, what we would call half-brothers because they were actually the biological children of Mary and Joseph, whereas Jesus was born as a miracle. James and Judah said, first, those brothers, none of them believed in him. You know, he's the older brother, and they're like, he's a little wacko. <laughs> you know, think if you were the younger brother of Jesus. I mean, it, Jesus said, you know, a prophet's not without honor except for in his own country. I mean, I'm, he's probably referring to these younger brothers. But later, his brothers, at least James and Jude, came to believe in Jesus, and they wrote letters in the New Testament. James became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. So anyway, my point in all of that is to say the New Testament had solid basis of people who knew Jesus. By the, by the time of the first century, the, the decades that followed the, the passion of the Christ, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, a lot of these letters now were commonly used in the Bible, in, the, in church gatherings. They weren't yet canonized, but they were commonly used. They were passed around, copied. In the fourth century, a man, uh, a man named Athanasius, who was considered now looked upon as the chief defender of Christian orthodoxy, and the word orthodoxy simply means uh, committed to a standard. He was the chief defender of that. He helped create the canon of Scripture, the New Testament 
came. There was a, you know, some people struggle. They say, well, what about this gospel? What about this other book that was never bought and brought it? Let's not kid ourselves. There were a lot of people writing a lot of things like down through history. Writing wasn't new, you know. Everybody's writing. There were opinions. Josephus mentions Jesus. I mean, he's everywhere. So there were a lot of people writing a lot of things about Jesus, but not everything was necessarily reliable. And part of the discipline of the church in the early days was try to figure out which ones of these really are reliable history that are, can be trusted. And that's where we get our 27 books of the New Testament. Ironically and almost miraculously, these books were copied by hand for 1,400 years until the time of German, a German named Johannes Gutenberg created the printing press. And what's remarkable, I meant to look this up before I came this morning and I just didn't have the time, but I don't know if you've ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but they were discovered, I believe it was in the 1940s, hidden in a cave uh, in the Middle East. And one of them was almost the complete book of the, of the Old Testament writer Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. And it was almost identical to other manuscripts that were also 1,400 years old. That's, I mean, that old, way older manuscripts. That shows the discipline of the Hebrew scribes in copying, they saw themselves as stewarding a very important kind of history that needed to be carefully taken care of. Their precision was above anything we could hardly understand. So today we have this wonderful Bible and we have it proliferating thanks to Gutenberg who printed, and you know the first book he printed? Anyone want to guess? The Bible. Fifth, about 16 years after he invented it, well, 15 years, he, present, he printed the first complete Bible, and it's called the Gutenberg Bible in 1455. And today, we have this wonderful book, easily access, access, access to it. It guides us into truth. It encourages our hearts, transforms our behavior, comforts us in difficulty. Well, let's talk a little bit, just a few minutes before we wrap up today. Let's talk about the Old Testament again. The Old Testament had a similar kind of history that we just talked about with the New, beginning with Moses, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament called the Pentateuch. It's kind of a fancy word, but it means penta five. So the five books were written by Moses over many centuries after that, many others wrote many other books, so they all didn't come to, together in, in a short time. It was many centuries of things being written by different ones, but they began with Moses writing the Pentateuch, sometimes called by the Jews the law. Moses was uh, given this title, this honor of being the lawgiver, because he's the one who received the Ten Commandments, and he had this history. The Old Testament has law, it has history, it has wisdom, it has worship, psalms, proverbs, those kind of things. Major and minor prophets that lived down through the years of Israel's history. Think of everything the Old Testament has contributed to our Western culture. Our sense of origins, creation. Of course, that's being greatly challenged today. But the Bible is really unapologetic about how we came to be. It's a clear story. Just law and order. The idea of law and order through the Ten Commandments. Don't murder, don't kill, don't lie, you know. 
lie, don't bear false witness, which has to do with officially saying something inaccurate in an official setting, what we would call a court. Sense of justice and right and wrong, stories like the Exodus, slaves being freed, David and Goliath, the idea of the, the underdog having, bringing justice and fairness to a ruling power that's, that's um, a demagogic. Comfort. What psalm do, does everybody in the whole world go to when they need comfort? Psalm 23, did I hear that? Anyway, there's other ones. You, if you have a favorite, I'm not disparaging your favorite. Psalm 23 is commonly known. The messianic promises of a coming of a Savior. They knew the Savior was coming. In fact, when Jesus was born, there was a lot of dialogue. You know, In fact, one king, he was so worried about it that he tried to kill, kill the Messiah. The messianic foundation of the Christian faith to which we also re referred. I want to give you three reasons why the Bible can be trusted. One is authority. In, in 2 Peter, his second letter, he writes this, knowing this, and he's actually referring to Old Testament scriptures. He's saying, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Think about it. That's kind of an intuitive sense of authority. And I, and I can guarantee you, if you read the Bible for really what it's worth to listen, you will see the authority in it. This is something that's been recognized. That's, you know, you can't prove that in court. But it is there. We'll get the other reasons. No other piece of literature has, has more ancient and verifiable, verifiable written source material. No, no other piece of literature has been more copied, translated, and globally distributed. No other piece of literature has more influenced the world over the last 4,000 years. Secondly, so that's authority. Second is accuracy. Anyone who studies the Old Testament with an objective eye, including the archaeological records, will confront an immense weight of evidence and validity. Archaeology confirms the biblical record. The stories have amazing detail. Family genealogies going all the way back to Adam and Eve. Ancient Jewish scribes were known for their precision. We talked about that. Roman Jewish historian lived in the time of Jesus. He was a contemporary. He worked for Rome. He was Jewish, but he worked for Rome as a historian. His name was Flavius Josephus. He wrote this about the Old Testament. In the first century, although such... Such long ages have now gone by. This is quoting him. Although such long ages have now gone by, no one has dared to add anything to them, take away from them, or change anything in them. That was 2,000 years ago. The third, third reason why we can trust the biblical, the biblical canon is authenticity. They are absolutely raw. The raw accounts of God working through flawed humans, like us. <laughs> Vishal Mangalwadi, I don't expect you to remember his name, but he's an Indian man, grew up in India as a Hindu, 
who became a Christian after he, had, he studied as a part of his Hindu education in a university of India. He, had, he studied all the religions of the world. So he was studying Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, and Christianity, and Judaism. So five of the major religions of the world he's studying. And part of his studies, even though his Hindu professors were disparaging the other religions, particularly Christianity, and there's reasons for that that I won't get into. Why would he disparage Christianity over the other ones? But he had to read the Bible, and he became very intrigued by the Bible as he read it. Here's what he says. When I first read Genesis as an adult, I was shocked by the timidity of Abraham and his son Isaac. They were so afraid of lawless men around them that they described their wives as sisters. This is the father of the faith. He's a coward. <laughs> he tries to say, his, no, 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 Sarah is my sister because he's afraid the king was going to kill him. The story is in Genesis 20. He so feared King Ambibelech that would kill him to steal his beautiful wife. He cowardly tells the king that Sarah's sister, and Abimelech takes sister Sarah to his harem and spares Abraham's life. And as a result, Abimelech comes under God's judgment. He discovers what Abraham had done, and he goes back and rebukes Abraham for the lie. So here you have a pagan king rebuking a man of God for lying to him. The irony. Mengawadi goes on in his book. He says, Abraham did nothing of the sort that Ram, a divine hero of India's religious epic, the Ramayana, did to Ravana after he had taken Ram's wife Sita into his harem. Ram organized an army of monkeys, built a bridge across the ocean, burned Sri Lanka, and brought his wife back in a flying machine. Yeah, that happened. According to Mangalwadi, the shocking simplicity of the biblical stories, quote, inspires confidence that the Bible records reality. Continuing, he says, this oral tradition had plenty of time for gifted storytellers to embellish it. Yet no one turned them into anything like Indian or Greek epics. Brilliant editor editors could have used those centuries to refine and polish the narratives for generous, gen Genesis is superbly crafted. Why didn't a storyteller turn his ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, into heroes like Achilles or Odysseus? Why? Because they were telling the truth. These things actually happened, and they felt we need to steward the facts. They weren't just myth. Sometimes the biblical heroes were heroic and other times they were complete cowards. We read these when we read about David and Bathsheba, when we read about Samson and Delilah, when we read about these different heroes of the faith. We're flawed, embarrassment, embarrassingly flawed. And the Bible doesn't in any way try to circumvent the story, just tells it. Okay, let's talk just for a minute about Old Testament violence. Hmm. This one maybe makes a lot of us stumble sometimes, particularly through the books of Joshua and Judges. A lot of violence. Was God mad in the Old Testament and then he suddenly becomes happy in the New Testament? How do we deal with that? In, in his book, The God Delusion, atheist Richard Dawkins says, he says this, quoting a part of his long diatribe. He says, 
The, old, the God of the Old Testament is, quote, arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, a vindicative, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a capriciously malevolent bully. Now, you might, like to th you might think that right now I will excoriate Dawkins for saying such a thing, but I'm not going to. In fact, we feel that sometimes when we read the Old Testament. If you're honest, like, what, what is going on here? We feel that sometimes just by, by just objective reading, but we really feel it when we're going through difficulties and wondering why God is allowing us to suffer. Does God just allow these things? Is God just indifferent to human struggles? Is God mean? Does God endorse just random violence standing back? How do we answer questions about Old Testament violence? Well, there's a couple ways to deal with it. One is to, is to believe that Israel acted with limited, a limited framework. They didn't really know God as he could be known. It wasn't yet revealed to them, and so they were acting to a certain extent out of their limited view of this God they were serving. There's some validity to that, and God, in his grace, uh, accommodated them. That's a theological term. It means God allowed, and there can be a, made a case for that because God, how much does he accommodate you <laughs> when you do things that are not in line with his purposes? He accommodates us. He forbears. He offers forgiveness. He overlooks. Eventually, he will hold us accountable, and that's the weakness of that view is God still is a judge. Some of the commands are, can look, be looked upon as hyperbole, meaning it was more of a warning. One of the Hebrew words, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so for any of you who are, I'm, please forgive me if I, if I um, misrepresent, but I got this from valid authorities. The, the word harem is translated to annihilate, and it actually means in some passages it's translated to ban, meaning it's like a warning if you don't leave, because remember the, the Israelites were coming into the land that had formerly been theirs, and now it was occupied by other tribal nations, and they were coming in to reclaim the land that had been theirs prior to them leaving as in a famine hundreds of years before, and they were coming back to the land, and God was, had promised them this land, and so they were saying to these many of these tribes that were really pagan, idol worshippers, violent, you know, they're not innocent people living in nice little hobbit villages. You know, these, this is a lot of evil going on in these areas. And they were warned to either leave or these kind of things might happen to you. So that's another way of understanding. Probably more accurately is to understand this picture of human brokenness. Violence is a part of human experience because of sin. We see this even in our modern times with war. You young people don't know this. I'm old enough to have this perspective because it affected my parents and grandparents, but world, the world, world, two world wars in the 19th, the 20th century, 1900s, early 1900s to the late 1940s, two world wars killed more people, hundreds and hundreds of millions of civilians and of, of soldiers were killed and, and the, the accumulative of all that death was more than all previous wars combined in, in world history. Now, we worked for a long time in 
in Sri Lanka during a time of civil war. And so we had firsthand experience of how violence affected the people, even Christian people around them. We saw this. You, you, you do not live in a wartime, even as a follower of Jesus, without being affected by your environment. And that was a part of what was going on among the Jewish people as they were coming into these lands as a tribal nomadic people. They were being affected by the stuff around them. I remember talking to a couple of Christian leaders about the war, and uh, it was a civil war, so there were Tamils fighting against Sinhalese, and there were Tamil, some of the Tamil factions had gone into what were called by the government, because the government was dominated by the Sinhalese, and the Tamils were the minority, and they had gone into what they had gone into little small armies, one called the Tamil Tigers. And the government, of course, called them terrorists. And they were doing a lot of terroring things. And a couple of the Christians, we were sitting around talking, and, and one of them just flat out said loudly in the group, because we were with Tamil people, he said, they're not terrorists, they're freedom fighters. I'm like, okay, you know. <laughs> I kept my mouth shut, because... I wasn't a Tamil or a Sinhalese, and I wasn't going to immerse myself. But I noted that these Tamil believers had been influenced by these, this environment. Even peace-loving people just found themselves in the middle of difficulty. I remember another story that was personal to the pastor we work with. Two teenage boys in one of their churches, had, there was a dispute over land, and these two teenage boys, against the counsel of their, of their parents, they said, we're going to go to the police and get this settled. Well, the police in the country during this time were all Sinhalese. And these two teenage boys went to the police station to complain about this land dispute. And the police killed them and threw their bodies in a field. You can imagine the trauma on this Tamil church and moms and dads who were just inconsolable. This is the reality of wartime and, and the stuff that the Bible talks about very, with very raw words. And we have to read the Bible with a sense of humility, saying, Lord, help me understand you helping navigate your purposes through this morass of human confusion and trauma and hurt and evil. That's, that's part of the challenge of us interpreting Scripture. Well, we got to wrap this up. This is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus came. This is the point to redeem mankind. This is even Jesus himself talked about this. Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, he raises the bar on the law. He says, you know, you've heard it said that if you are angry with your brother, you know, if you kill your brother, you're, you're going to pay the price and be called before the judge. But he says, I'm telling you, if you're angry with your brother, the law says, if you commit adultery, you know, you're going to pay the price. He says, I'm telling you, if you look on a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery with your, in your heart. So Jesus was getting to the core problem with humanity. The core problem was not behavior. The core problem was attitude of heart. John, the apostle, the follower of Jesus, he was, the, he was called the the disciple that Jesus loved. <laughs> he was close to Jesus. You can read about it in the Gospel of John. He's, he's a gentle soul. He's the one that writes the book of Revelation. 
You talk about judgment. Revelation will make you quiver. Stuff that's coming on the world. Even Christ's death. Think about it. The death of Christ on the cross was a violent thing. The Romans were brutal to the ones they executed. The the cross was one of the most brutal things that could be done. But sin's debt had to be paid. Evil had to be confronted. Justice had to be served. And Christ willingly, willingly did this for us. Why? Because Jesus came on a mission to redeem the world. Forgiveness, transformation is the message. It was imperfectly foreseen in the Old Testament. It was perfectly fulfilled by Jesus in the New. Here's what John says, chapter 1 of the Gospel of John. He's going to have the worship team come. He says, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. Praise God. God and his word provide the answers to all the longings we have. The church is this community where we discover these things, where we experience them in worship and in times like this when we're listening to God's word. It's where perfection meets imperfection. huh? It's where flaws are forgiven. It's where broken people meet a healing God. Hallelujah. Or pride and anger, and that's kind of that's really at the heart of what resists God. Not so much our other outer behaviors, just that internal pride, arrogance. They meet their match in the humility and kindness of Jesus. We are people of the book. I encourage you to read your Bible every day. If you don't have a good translation, get a good translation. The NIV or the ESV are great translations. If you're new, maybe the New Living Translation is an easy read. Read your Bible. Feast on it. When you get hungry for a hamburger, have that same hunger for the Word of God. It'll feed your soul. Read with your mind to learn and grow in your understanding and read with your heart to hear from God and draw close to Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your precious word. We're so grateful, Lord, we live in a country that allows us to own a Bible, to possess your living word, to hold it close. Help us all just to grow in our deep hunger for your word, Lord, to learn of you. Even the passages that are sometimes difficult to understand, even the New Testament guys like Peter talks about that. Sometimes they're just things that are hard to understand, Lord. We we recognize, Lord, we're limited. We, we read with filters, but Lord, we rely on the Holy Spirit to illuminate, to unfold, to unpack, to reveal the person of Jesus through your word. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for who you are, Lord. Thank you for laying your life down on the cross for our sins. We just, right now this morning, Lord, we just receive that grace, that kindness. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ, let me encourage you. Just in the privacy of your own heart right now, just say, Lord, I need you in my life. 
I have sin I can't get rid of. I'm ashamed of stuff. Cleanse me. Forgive me. Receive me. I receive you. I receive you, Lord. I can't do this on my own. I need you to come in from the outside and transform my life. If that's you this morning, I welcome you to bask in the goodness of God and let Jesus Christ become your Lord and your Savior. Tell some about what happened to you this week. We thank you, Lord, today. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.